Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Thank you for joining the Impactful Conversations podcast series, part of MoFo Perspectives, where we discuss how successful impact investors and companies have achieved positive, measurable social and environmental impact alongside financial return. My name is Shai Kalansky, and I'm an associate at Morrison & Forster, an international law firm with 17 offices around the world. Today, I'm joined by Scott Jacobs. Scott is the CEO and co-founder of Generate Capital, a leading sustainable infrastructure platform delivering affordable, reliable resources solutions to companies, communities, and cities. Prior to Generate in 2007, Scott joined McKinsey & Company to co-found its global clean tech practice, advising companies, institutional investors, NGOs, and governments around the world on the economic imperatives of resource productivity and climate solutions. Prior to that, Scott spent over a decade in technology and venture capital, helping start and grow a number of companies, including PolyServe, which was acquired by HP, and Alliance Data Systems, which was acquired by Fiserv. Scott has dedicated much of his professional life to the resource revolution and is a regular writer, keynote speaker, and conference panelist on the topics of thematic investing and risk management, climate and resource-related innovation, and building values-based and people-centric businesses. Scott earned his MBA with high distinction from Harvard Business School, where he was named a George F. Baker Scholar, and his BA, cum laude, from Dartmouth College. Scott, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Shai. My pleasure. So we have a handful of questions that we were hoping to discuss with you because we think they're going to be of real interest to our audience. The first is, and as you know, impact means a lot of different things to different people. How do you define impact and purpose, and how does that tie to Generate Capital's mission? Well, I think impact is really just a way of describing the objective function of a set of activities we're trying to achieve a certain result. And typically when we talk about impact in our spheres of impact investing or sustainability, we're talking about environmental or social objectives that you're trying to achieve alongside perhaps some other objectives like financial objectives. So for us at Generate, we are trying to solve the world's critical resource issues. We're trying to solve things like climate change and energy poverty and water scarcity and food insecurity. These are all problems that we're trying to solve. And so therefore our purpose in trying to solve them is having a material positive impact on those issues. That's what we're trying to do with the business itself. And the purpose of the business is to prove that sustainability pays. Our view is that Far too few people out there understand the value proposition of sustainability. And when I say value, I mean both the financial value proposition and the other value propositions embedded in doing something sustainable with your energy, your food, your water, or your other resource systems. And unless we do more with less, of the critical inputs to our economy that are those resources, we will not be able to address 
the climate change, energy poverty, water scarcity, or food insecurity issues that we want to try to affect. And of all the, the, the things that you wanted to affect, how did you guys come to choose this specific handful? What is it about these that you guys decided made them the, the key ones to, that you were going to address? We see sustainability as a very broad, multifaceted idea. And so you're right to wonder why we chose the infrastructure space specifically to try to have an impact on the world's resources. And really, it's because we believe the world's resources are delivered to the users of those resources primarily through infrastructure. You get your water through pipes. You move yourself using transportation infrastructure, whether it's mass transit infrastructure or per passenger travel infrastructure or logistics infrastructure. These are all infrastructure concepts. And importantly, when you talk about energy, you're really talking about the power grid, and that's an infrastructure question. So while a lot of folks in the early days of the concept of green tech or clean tech, folks were focused on inventions that might change the productivity equation, the in versus the out of the resource. The challenge is that those inventions are almost useless unless they are embedded into the world's existing or new infrastructure. And that makes the infrastructure itself a lot more important than the invention. What we decided to do was to try to prove to everyone that sustainable infrastructure was more valuable infrastructure. And in fact, we are proving that. If we continue to prove that sustainable infrastructure is more valuable than unsustainable infrastructure, there would be no reason ever to fund, build, or support unsustainable infrastructure. And by definition, therefore, we would have a transition that would totally change the game. So you said something that I think is really interesting that I'd like to explore a bit more. I mean, given your time in the industry, it's been well over a decade. You said in the early days, people were interested in technology, and now there's been a shift. Can you talk a bit about how you've seen that transition over time? Sure. When I got into this whole space of clean, green, sustainable stuff, it was at the very, very beginning of the enthusiasm wave that you saw in Silicon Valley in the late 2000s or mid 2000s. And it was just like with me, this notion that we could reinvent systems with new technology, new innovation that would completely transform those systems and ultimately the value creation mechanism for end users or customers or investors or name your stakeholder that's financially invested. This was a relatively naive concept that we could reinvent the energy system. You had a lot of folks and I was included among them, thinking that we could apply the Silicon Valley innovation engine and framework and mindsets to the energy system. But we have to remember what has propelled that Silicon Valley innovation success over the last 40 years. 
it was small amounts of money given to small teams who in short periods of time created big revenues, which had big margins, and then generated big companies and exit values for those early risk takers. That's a wonderful model for software. Completely doesn't work for energy. In energy, none of those six criteria that I mentioned apply. It's not small amounts of money. You need much bigger teams. You need much longer time horizons. You need to think vastly differently about unit economics and ultimately the path a company might take in order to actually have success in the energy space. And we didn't realize that as a collective Silicon Valley group back then when we first started coining the term green tech or clean tech. And I realized it pretty quickly and transitioned, therefore, to a place where I thought I could have much more influence or impact over the question itself. And that was at McKinsey, because what I recognized was that energy is an infrastructure game, not an invention game. And the players in the infrastructure game are big capital providers, big governments, and big companies, not little companies starting out of a garage with a dog on the floor and a couple of computer programmers. It's a completely different game. And so for me, the prospect at McKinsey of influencing big capital, big corporate players, and big government was far more compelling than trying to reinvent the next widget that would go into a vehicle or an energy grid. Scott, what I'd like to explore a bit more is why you think it's, in, it's an infrastructure play and not just an invention play. Well, the proof is in the pudding, frankly. We now have 15 years of hindsight to draw on, but it was a relatively difficult conclusion for me as a Silicon Valley guy to, con to come to back in 2005 when I did because we didn't know what we now know. But what I understood at that point in time in 2005 and has borne out in the data since is that those six criteria for value creation in tech, small amounts of money going to small teams who in short periods of time create big revenues, big margins, and big exits, don't apply to energy or infrastructure companies because energy and infrastructure companies take a lot more time, take a lot more money and have a lot lower margins. So if you look at the innovations that have targeted the energy system, a solar cell, a smart meter, a wind turbine, these are low margin businesses. These are capital intensive businesses. And if it's capital intensive, you have to think about where that capital is going to come from. Venture capitalists don't invest in capital intensive businesses. They invest in capital efficient businesses like software, where you have 90% gross margins. It's a very different unit economics and infrastructure. To deliver an electron to a consumer 
You have to build a bunch of infrastructure, transmission grids. Well, think about who actually delivers that electron to the customer. It's the utility. And in the case of the utility, they have a regulated rate of return on the capital that they invest because they are a capital intensive business and they have to socialize their costs across a wide number of people in order to maximize public benefit. Above all other factors, they are incentivized to provide reliable electricity. Well, that by definition suggests they don't wanna take a lot of risk. They don't have any incentive to try a new solar cell. They don't have any incentive to try a new smart meter. They only try those things when they're mandated to do so because it's much easier for them to take a lower risk approach of doing exactly what they've been doing because by definition, continuing what you are doing is typically perceived as lower risk than changing what you are doing. So when you think about just the energy industry structure, the invention itself of the equipment that produces the electrons is a long way off from the consumer who actually benefits from those electrons being available. Furthermore, there's very little value placed on one type of electron over another type of electron by the end consumer. The end consumer actually doesn't even have transparency through their utility arrangement about whether that electron is green or brown or black or purple. So there's no way to charge really a premium for those consumers who might want more value, more benefits. There's just one price that the utility charges that customer. And the inventor has no control over that price. So the inventor is, by definition, working through a channel that is the utility that is incentivized not to take any risk or do anything new. And the end customer doesn't actually get a chance to differentiate all the way back to how the technology produced the electrons in the first place. So because of that capital intensity and that risk aversion, you have a channel that has no incentive to be an early adopter of anything innovative. And as a result, the companies that make the technologies that produce those electrons have very little pricing power and thus have very little margin. And yet it was very expensive to make a solar cell because you have to build a major fabrication facility. And there you have the unit economics. It's capital intensive with low margin. That is not a place for venture capital. That is not a real place that's ripe for an inventor to create a bunch of value. You, you, you've touched on innovation a number of times uh, in, in our conversation. What's an innovation that you are excited about? That's something that, that, that gets you going right now that you think looks really promising? Well, we're excited about a number of innovations across the energy and resource markets that do more with less of those precious resources we talk about. So we've been very active in some areas that others would have found scary, and we've proven that they pay. Pay better, in fact, than conventional solutions. Some examples are battery storage systems. We were the first in 2014 
to put battery storage systems into commercial and industrial environments to store electricity and to make that electricity available at the times that those commercial and industrial consumers needed it. That battery technology that we installed in this new application is the same battery technology that you and I rely on for our cell phones and our laptops. And obviously Tesla now and others rely upon for electric vehicles. But back in 2014, very few installations in the power sector had been done. And we started installing these systems and proving that it was economically interesting first to those customers and then second to us as the owners of those systems. And now quite a few folks are interested in deploying batteries in the power market and funding batteries in the power market. We've also been very active in fuel cells for transportation. Fuel cells are a technology that have been around also for decades, just like lithium ion batteries. But very few people saw it as an economically compelling technology for a transportation application until our partner, Plug Power, started proving it in installations doing materials handling in distribution centers. And now Amazon and Walmart completely depend upon these fuel cells to power the forklifts that move the goods around in these mission critical distribution centers so that all of us today can benefit from e-commerce and cheaper goods that Amazon and Walmart are able to deliver to us. But 10 years ago, nobody would have thought fuel cells were an appropriate technology for that materials handling application. The list goes on and on of what others would consider either esoteric or niche or just not that interesting. And yet we have put them into applications where the economic value proposition to the customer is compelling. And if that is the case, you can typically find a way to build more of it because the customer is benefiting from the value you're creating and is willing to pay for it. Are there any other plays in, in infrastructure more broadly that you see on the horizon that are exciting? Or, or, or if you don't see them, are there any that you would like to see? Well, if you look at the problem of climate change, you can see a number of places where we're making really great progress in decarbonizing the economy. Power generation being the most obvious example for all of us, as we see renewable power offers more compelling economics than non-renewable or conventional power. And as a result, for more than 10 years, more than half of the new energy generation capacity added to the grids around the world has been carbon-free. And that is only continuing unabated to the point where we will have 100% carbon-free electricity within our lifetimes. So I'm not as concerned about propelling that any faster because it's happening so quickly now on its own. But where we are not making as much progress decarbonizing our infrastructure is in two particular areas. 
transportation, and building thermal loads, the heating of buildings. So we're going to see tremendous change over the next 10 years in the electrification of buildings, transitioning from gas-powered heating systems to electric heating systems, and potentially also seeing the introduction of hydrogen as a new way of addressing the decarbonization challenge of the thermal load of buildings. Those are some areas I'm certainly excited about on the building front. On the transportation front, what I am most excited about is getting to a place where we have autonomous, electric, and networked vehicles. All three of those things need to happen, autonomous, electric, and networked. They have to be everywhere because until we actually show that the customers benefit better with electric, autonomous, networked transportation, we will continue to rely upon gas-powered internal combustion engine vehicles. And we will not solve the climate crisis without decarbonizing our transportation fleet. We will do so by having a much more compelling value proposition to the end customer with a transportation option that is therefore networked, autonomous, and electric. If we could pivot for a second and move away from discussing the technology and the infrastructure specifically and go back to discussing impact, what trends do you see in impact investing going forward? Well, impact investing has been defined differently depending on who you ask for its entire existence. In fact, as we all know, impact investing started as concessionary capital, meaning it was the notion that you actually were willing to concede on financial results in order to achieve social or environmental goals. That's where this all started. And I think we've moved quite a ways from that concept to the point where now we have concepts like blended value, shared value, shared prosperity, and really generate my company where we achieve better than the conventional market returns from a financial standpoint, while also achieving a material positive impact socially and environmentally. That is a trend that I think is the most important trend in the impact investing space. The the move away from this notion that you have to trade financial returns in order to achieve the social or environmental objectives. That is the only way we scale to achieve the impact on the problems that we're trying to solve. The problems that we at Generate are trying to solve, for example, climate change, energy poverty, water scarcity, food insecurity, these are trillion dollar a year problems. Problems that require at least a trillion dollars per year to solve. Well, if you look back across all of human history, across all charitable causes, you won't find trillions of dollars per year. You might not even find a trillion dollars cumulatively. So we have to move out of the niche of philanthropy or charity as the source of funds 
and into the world of market-based returns, of really compelling financial returns, while also achieving these social and environmental impacts or benefits. If we are going to scale the solutions to meet the size of the problems as they present themselves. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we're seeing, you know, I think there's people are really looking to do good and do well at the same time. And I think that opportunity really exists now for us. Something that you and I have discussed offline before, but I think the audience uh, might benefit from that discussion is, you know, what advice do you have for companies uh, or individuals looking to move into this space uh, or incorporate impact and ESG and purpose into their current projects? My first words of advice to anyone looking to have an impact is to continue to have the courage to chase it and to chase it with intellectual honesty and integrity. And that means that you have to align your strategy with your structure and with your team. Most entrepreneurs or impact investors are willing to make a compromise on team strategy or structure in order to achieve a quicker result. But what you're doing when you make that compromise is you're really shooting yourself in the foot. You have to have coherence among strategy, structure, and team in order to build trust. You have to have that coherence in order to get other people to believe you have the credibility to actually achieve the results you're targeting. If you don't have that trust, you will not be licensed to operate. And so many folks are so eager to achieve the impact that they aim to achieve, that they will make a compromise out of expediency. And that compromise will undermine the trust that they can earn and thus their ultimate ability to achieve. So again, my advice is to have the courage to really think hard, to really act with integrity across everything involved in your planning so that you can actually merit that trust from those other stakeholders you need in order to achieve the goals that you have. Scott, could you tell us a bit how you made the transition from being at McKinsey to starting Generate? Absolutely. I was at McKinsey as an entrepreneur having the chance to co-found a practice with a number of my partners. And I was never really just a consultant. As you know, my decade plus career prior to McKinsey was as an entrepreneur. And my natural tendency is to see a problem and try to solve it. Well, you can do that as a consultant and you can also do that as an entrepreneur. My experience at McKinsey taught me that there was a very big problem that was not being addressed in the sustainability market writ large. We were incredibly successful at McKinsey getting people to understand sustainability as an economic 
question rather than an altruistic or policy-driven one. And that was a big transition for the leaders of government and the leaders of companies that we served at McKinsey. What became very clear, however, was that these leaders of government and these leaders of companies still needed money in order to drive sustainability initiatives. And they weren't able to get that money from the capital markets the way they traditionally accessed capital in those capital markets. So I went on a little journey trying to understand that problem specifically. And I first went to the investment banks. Those are the folks that a CEO might hire to raise some money to invest in a sustainability-related project. And when I went to these investment banks, I learned that while they might appreciate the ideas behind a renewable energy project or a wastewater treatment facility, they didn't know where to get the capital for it. They claimed that their clients, the capital providers, didn't want to fund those kinds of projects. And I found that to be incredulous. I went instead to the capital directly, the pension funds, the insurance companies, and the sovereign wealth funds who currently hold tens of trillions of dollars and who currently have tens of trillions of dollars worth of liabilities. And I asked them, are you really not interested in investment opportunities that provide you stable long-term cash flows in a contracted nature, delivering double-digit rates of return on capital invested? And every single one of these sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, and insurance companies said, we want as much of that as we can find every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And so I realized there was a disconnect. The intermediaries who typically manage that money for those asset holders didn't have the right incentives to actually pursue these really profitable, long-term cash-flowing projects. They had short-term incentives. They are paid by generating fees. That's true if you're an investment banker. That's true if you're an investment advisor. That's true if you're a hedge fund. That's true if you're a private equity firm. You get most of your income, if not all of it, from fee generation. And the way to generate fees quickly is to offer people something they've seen before and that they're organized to execute against. Sustainability is a theme. It cuts across sectors, geographies, and asset classes. Climate change doesn't care if you're a real estate investor in North America, or if you're a private equity investor in Europe, or if you're an infrastructure person in Asia. It's affecting all of those folks, and they all need to understand the theme of climate risk. But the capital markets are structured in such a way that asset classes, geographies, and sectors are all isolated. We have this antiquated notion that we manage risk. 
having uncorrelated asset classes, sectors, and geographies, which 2008 proved to be false and completely misguided because we had a crisis in real estate, fixed income, North America, that was supposedly isolated from the rest of the economy, according to capital market taxonomy and risk management, and yet it infected the entire economy. So this notion that North America real estate fixed income was somehow uncorrelated with the rest of the economy was false. And that helps us understand the thematic risk that something like climate change presents across all asset classes, sectors, and geographies, but perhaps most importantly, across time. And as I was saying, fees are generated quickly by doing things that are conventional. It makes it very hard for us to see an opportunity that cuts across asset classes, sectors, geographies, and time, unless you actually completely disrupt the existing system. And so we decided we had to disrupt the existing system, go directly to those asset holders, the sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, and insurance companies who have a long-term set of obligations, and they are interested in putting their capital to work for long-term oriented returns and matching that with the real economy, which is not something that goes through an intermediary. The real economy is the power plant. The real economy is the wastewater treatment facility. The real economy is the consumer getting on a bus. And actually, the real economy presents tremendous opportunities for sustainable infrastructure investments. The question was, how do you put them together first and foremost and make them available to the long-term oriented capital that is out there? And that is why we said we had to start something new in generate. We had to disrupt the current capital markets that are so siloed and so short-term oriented in order to match the real capital with the real economy. And that's what we've done. So you and I, again, in, in prior discussions have talked about how structure and governance plays into that. Would you mind sharing your views on that? Sustainable infrastructure really is the ultimate stakeholder alignment exercise. You have a bunch of different stakeholders, each with different needs. You've got a community, you've got a customer, you have typically investors, project developer, a project operator. You also have a lot of third-party service providers like lawyers, accountants, auditors. All of these different stakeholders need to see the project as delivering real value. Also, importantly, when you think about the customer and the community in particular, you're talking about projects that will extend in their own lives longer than the lives of many of the individuals currently in the community or at the customer today. A power plant outlives many of us. So you actually have to think about stakeholders who aren't even born yet because they will be your customer. They will be your community at some point in the life of this project. That's a long-term mindset that isn't typically part of the incentive structure for an executive or an investment firm. In fact, the executive will likely be gone from his or her role as the executive before many of the challenges or opportunities even play themselves out. 
So you really have to think about governing and structuring in such a way that you actually address those long-term interests and align those stakeholders across time. That means a very different model than the traditional Milton Friedman shareholder primacy economic model that put us in the situation that we're in today, where climate change is occurring faster and with more severe consequences than we imagined several years ago. So, you know, you talked a bit about governance and structure, and I think, you know, we've we've seen how you guys have structured Generate to really address those. Would you mind giving the, the, the audience some color on what you guys had in mind there and what you have done in order to ensure proper governance and structure to align these incentives? Absolutely. I actually think this is a critical component of our success, perhaps the most critical component. We're actually in the trust business. All of these different stakeholders that we just talked about aligning, we're aligning their interests because we want to be trusted as delivering value to each of them. So when we think about structure and governance, we think about how to make sure the structure and governance of the company build trust fundamentally with all of our stakeholders. When you think about starting a new business or raising capital, there are a lot of tried and true ways to do that in the conventional sense. But many of them, when you think about sustainability, fall down because the structure, the strategy, and the team no longer cohere. You can't go to an investor with the classic 10-year closed-end, self-liquidating fund structure for a 25-year asset. It just doesn't make sense. You lose credibility from the minute you utter those words, self-liquidating 10-year 2 and 20 fund for 25, 30, 50 year assets. And if you lose that credibility, you lose the trust and that trust is your license to operate. So when we started Generate, we knew we couldn't go with the conventional approach that, that got us into the problems that we're trying to solve today. We had to reinvent the alignment of interests, the governance such that it actually built trust from the minute we uttered the words of what we were trying to do. So we built a permanently capitalized operating company, understanding that our assets are as permanent as really anything can be. And so it would be terribly undermining of our strategy to have a structure that had a shorter term time horizon built into it from the get-go. Similarly, the operating point, we knew we had to operate physical assets to deliver the value for all of these stakeholders, particularly those communities and customers that we serve. We're operating projects. We're promising that we will deliver resources to these customers, these communities from physical assets in the real economy, not financial assets in the capital markets, the way most investors think about the world. So that was really the basis for how we thought about governance and structure when we set up Generate in a way that many would call crazy, some might call courageous. We feel very fortunate. It was the right decision. It seems like trust is a key element here. We talked about that a couple times during this podcast. Do you think that trust is expanding the investor base into other investor classes? And if so, what sort of trends are you seeing there? I think the whole push into ESG is an opportunity for us to recast that trust question. And we are going to see, I think, a new breed of investors who take trust really seriously. I often joke that 
the financial institutions of the past actually had the word trust in their name, bank and trust, right? Banks used to be called trusts. It's not surprising that they no longer have that in their name anymore. Um, But I do think that when you think about environmental, social governance factors and the alignment of those things in the strategy of a business, you are from the get-go building more trust. And if you act consistently with integrity, doing what you said you would do, you are building more trust. And I think the world is crying out for more of that accountability, more of that integrity, and more of that honesty about what you're actually trying to do and how you're going to achieve it. Do you have any other advice to founders as to how they might build that trust, the integrity that you keep talking about as well? Yeah, there's a saying these days, quite popular, you be you. And I'll say that for me, even as the CEO of this business, I've learned how to be me in the course of running this business and in the role of the CEO, which was not necessarily natural for me when I started. But I do think that the authenticity of a leader is a critical requirement for success today. And you got to be you in order to generate that trust with your employees or your investors or any of the other stakeholders we've been talking about. If you try to pretend to be somebody else, by definition, that's not an honest presentation and it's not one that's going to engender the trust that you need in order to build your business. Well, I think that might be generally true. I think it is particularly true in a mission-driven business like yours. I would agree with that. What do you think that the future of impact investing looks like and what trends do you think we're going to see moving forward? I saw some data the other day from a famous consulting firm that said more than $15 trillion will be allocated to ESG by 2030. And similarly, just under $15 trillion is rotating out of existing private assets as funds distribute and expire. There is an enormous amount of money that is plowing into values-driven, mission-consistent, purpose-oriented investments. And frankly, most of the great people in the investing space are looking for ways to get involved in impact investing and for them to actually have their life, their work, their values all be consistent. And so we're going to see a tremendous number of new firms enter the space. We're also going to see a tremendous number of existing investment firms embark upon new impact investing strategies and launch new impact products. This market is at an inflection point today. And you can see it in Mark Carney joining Brookfield. You can see it in KKR and many of the other famous brands launching impact funds. But what we will still need is that authenticity, that integrity, that trust building that we've been talking about. And that, I believe, is what will separate those who really succeed at achieving results versus those who are just trying to aggregate assets that generate more fees. 
You know, something I'm seeing in, in, in my own sphere here is that we're sitting on one of the largest like intergenerational transfers of wealth coming up. And you see a lot of people who are younger who are, are inheriting these assets really motivated by impact and really looking for the opportunity to, to deploy their dollars with integrity and authenticity, like you described, that is true to who they are. And I think that's going to be something else that we see too. Are you, are you seeing that at all? Absolutely. The intergenerational transition of power and wealth has been my greatest source of hope that we might actually solve these long-term problems that we've seen and known about for a long time. And it's not just the transition of the wealth, as you were talking about, but it's also the transition of the power. Those folks who are now in their 20s and 30s and 40s are ascending into important leadership positions across all of the spheres of our society, the public sphere, the social sphere, and the private sphere. Those folks, for example, with respect to climate change, don't question the science. It's not a political issue. They understand what's happening. They understand it's an existential threat. And they're now in a position to influence the outcomes, whereas before they were begging their parents to wake up. I think that's exactly right. So I have one more question before we wrap things up. We've touched on authenticity and integrity a number of times during our chat today. What do you look for in teammates and how does that play into your strategy? Well, that's a great question. It's probably the most important question. When you start a company, you have the great privilege of picking who you get to work with. In fact, for me, it's the reason to start a company. And given that we trade on trust, as we've talked about, our license to operate is that trust. We have to build trust through all the people that form the company. And so I always said when we started the company that I wanted my colleagues to be people from whom I'd be proud my kids are going to learn about life. And fortunately, these generators, I am extremely proud that my new three-month-old son is going to learn about life from them. I'd say that's very lucky, but I bet it's more to do with, uh, with deliberate choice than luck here. It's a lot of intention, and it's a lot of hard work, and it's a lot of time interviewing, and it's a lot of commitment from everyone to reflect the values of the organization in that process every time we meet those new candidates. But what we've found is that a lot of people who join us say that this is the kind of company they were always hoping they would find in their career. And so we now have that standard to live up to as we continue to grow and try to earn the right to be where they stay for the rest of their careers. Scott, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate your time and your insight, and I'm sure our audience will as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Shai. It's been a pleasure for me too. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.